Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm really excited about today's episode because I have with me Michelle Brass, who is a health and wellness coach and really focuses her practice around Indigenous communities, holistic health and nutrition, and food sovereignty. Michelle is a member of the Yellow Quill First Nation, and she calls Pipikasis First Nation home. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jenna, for having me. So, Michelle, can you just talk a little bit about, um, share with our listeners who, who you are and, and what you do and, and maybe a little bit about your path of how you ended up, um, you know, becoming a health and wellness coach and, and really focusing in on these, um, yeah, these, these really exciting topics. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a health and wellness coach, which is kind of a newer profession. People um, are starting to hear a little bit more about health coaches. Um, and essentially what we do is that we support people in creating positive habit change. So we're not dietitians or nutritionists. Um, we are definitely um, supporters of habit change. So um, a lot of times people know what they need to do to increase the health in their lives. Um, But what they need is support to make those habit changes. It's hard to make new habits stick. And so as a health and wellness coach, we're there to um, help people with, um, you know, consistency and um, staying on track and just incorporating um, new habits into their life into a sustainable way. So this isn't, you know, 20 day boot camps or (laughs) change everything in five (laughs) weeks. It's about um, incremental, um, steady and sustainable progress that you can integrate into your life. So I came into the health and wellness area. um, I've always been interested in health and wellness. Um, But about 15 years ago, I started to learn more about um, the global food system and where our food comes from. And one documentary led to a book, which led to articles, which led to more documentaries and more research. And I just became fascinated with this global food system and um, learning more about the health of our planet and the health of our bodies. And um, as a woman of Soto heritage to understanding our teachings around um, health and wellness of our local ecosystems and how we will gather foods and that kind of thing and how they really feed into one another. So what's really healthy for our planet will be healthy for us and vice versa. And we're not always seeing that in the world. We're seeing a food system that is based um, on an extractive economy, on quantity over quality. Um, And I understand there's a huge challenge to feed people throughout the world. And I don't uh, pretend to have answers to those issues. um, But I think that we also need to look at the health and wellness of the soil, of the waters, of how we 
um, grow and raise our food and access our food. So that's really how it started 15 years ago. And then I uh, discovered some health coach training programs, enrolled in them. I saw the difference it made in my life, the connections I was making with other people. And also with my my history of um, mixed ancestry, I'm of Soto ancestry as well as English and Swiss. And so I've always had this calling to help bring healing between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And I did that in a former career, a journalism career, through uh, telling stories and interviewing people, but I felt restricted and needed to do it in a more meaningful way. And so I moved to Papikasis with my husband and um, really embarked on a journey of deep um, self-healing, resting, not working quite so hard, Um, and becoming a health and wellness coach and pursuing other interests that really fed that wellness um, need in my life. And um, I found a a way that is so meaningful to me to help bring this healing between Indigenous and non-Indigenous and really focusing specifically on our Indigenous communities and how the history of colonization has led to ill health. So a lot of times you'll see health and wellness coaches out there that are promoting green smoothies and eating more kale uh, and and drinking lemon water. And while all of those are wonderful and fine, as Indigenous peoples, we cannot um, look away or we, we have to acknowledge the role of colonization in our health and wellness, our spiritual health, our emotional health, um, our mental and physical health has all um, really uh, the impacts of colonization have taken a toll. So that's where my passion lies now. And um, I'm just really feel honored to work in these communities and to, to try to live by my example and to share the knowledge that, that I gain over time and share that with others. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Thanks, Michelle. I feel like, oh, I have so many questions about uh, so many of the things that you said. Um, I'm curious. So what does some of that, that programming, so you talked about, um, you know, folks really connecting, um, you know, with, with culture and with, with nature and with themselves and with their health. Um, And, and, you know, you're specifically working a lot with, with um, Indigenous communities. So, what does that look like in terms of of what you offer? I'm I'm just so curious of of um, you know that process and that that reconnecting. Sure. So I um, I do one on one coaching. So uh, working with clients one on one, either it used to be in person, uh, and then I had switched to doing it by phone and by Zoom uh, prior to everybody working on Zoom. So. Um, it's something at least now that is a little bit uh, easier to connect with people. Um, so I do one-on-one coaching through programs and they can be three month programs, six month programs, sometimes a four week jumpstart, whatever the person or individual is ready for. Um, but mostly I like to deliver group programs and, um, and then there's some support there. Uh, you can reach more people. Um, it's, it's a bit more accessible for some people. And um, so, and that's really about, again, integrating that healthy habit change. So setting goals, how you're going to achieve them. It's really about teaching people as well, how to get in touch with their bodies. So many of us are disconnected because we live in such a head-based society, meaning we're always thinking and we're at work. And, and when we have to be at work on time or meet deadlines and push and push and push, we often will neglect our bodies uh, and the need for rest or when to slow down. Our society really isn't set up for that. So th- this is what I teach in those programs. So I do group programs, one-on-one. Um, and then I do presentations. So I can go to communities and deliver presentations 
discussions on a variety of topics. So sometimes it is on um, Indigenous food security and sovereignty. What does it mean for a community to be food secure um, or to have food sovereignty, which are two different concepts? Um, and then how can you work towards those goals? Sometimes it's about how do you cut out sugar in your life and, and really reduce that for your family because we have a lot of diabetes in our communities and a lot of chronic diseases. And so um, it's really about how do we do that? So there's a teaching component uh, with that as well. Hands-on workshops. I talk a lot about incorporating more traditional foods into our diet. And not everybody is a hunter or goes out uh, gathering uh, berries or medicines. And so how can we do that uh, within a global food system? Meaning if you're shopping at the grocery store, how do you incorporate more traditional foods? Um, so I do workshops on that. So um, things like, you know, eating more berries and they might not be, you know, the berries that we would have gathered um, mm. 50 or 100 years ago, but they're still part of a, a traditional diet, um, eating more fish, that kind of thing. And then I do um, like cooking classes and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, we have, you know, there's lots of dietitians in the community that do that as well, but that's something as well that it's about some of these traditional foods. So, you know, and, and we do this in our own life. Um, my husband is a hunter. And so, um, like I processed some elk liver in the fall for freezing so that we had three and four ounce little baggies of liver so that we can make sure to have that and increase our iron content. And then there's the connection to our culture and the land. And so then I really do a lot of presentations on how all of these pieces fit together. So I can talk like the macro big picture of food sovereignty and global health and wellness right down to what are you feeding your family for supper tonight and how are you going to prepare it? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love the way I'm just sort of imagining as a web as you speak. And that's something um, I know even for me, uh, but for a lot of folks that, that, the bigger picture of why does this stuff matter? Like, you know, how are all these things connected? You know, my body, my mind, my emotions, my well-being, my culture, um, you know, connect to what I eat, where it comes from, what's going on in the world. Like, I think if 2020 was anything, it was a lot of asking some of those, for, for a lot of folks, like asking some of those bigger questions and then bringing it back to, okay, but how do I do that now? in my own life, right? Like, how do I do those things in a very implementable, real, tangible way? So um, yeah, that's incredible. Um, Michelle, you you used two terms um, kind of midway through that thought. You, you were talking about food security and food sovereignty. So in your work and, and what you do in your experience, can you do a bit of explaining? I feel like a lot of our listeners might know um, and might have a definition for those two things, but some may not. So, Sure. They're really important concepts um, that I feel that our communities need to be um, more aware of and talking about more. And many are, um, but there's a spectrum. So food security uh, simply means, do you have access to healthy, nutritious food? And so access could be, can you, do you have a grocery store nearby in your community? Um, or if it's not in your community, do you have a car to travel 
to get and access that food. So number one, the food needs to be available. And when we see communities, particularly Northern communities, remote communities don't always have access to that food. Um, so number one, the food needs to be, or we see food deserts, right? Places where grocery stores have shut down in urban centers um, and particularly in core neighborhoods. And if people are relying on public transportation, don't have vehicles, accessing food is a real issue. Um, so one is it, is it, accessible. The other, and then two, can you purchase it? So the other barrier to accessing food is, can you buy it? So again, in Northern communities, for example, what we see um, really basic foods um, cost these crazy high prices because of the cost of transportation, because of uh, seasonal issues. Like there's so many reasons for that. And so then sometimes it becomes out of reach. And so then we see shelf stable foods that aren't nutritious, but will last a long time um, cheaper than uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and high quality meats and proteins, um, dairy, if that's something that you want to incorporate. So um, yeah, making sure you have access to the food and that you can purchase it and not just purchasing food that will fill your belly and has calories, but food that is going to nourish you. So foods that have vitamins and minerals that have an adequate amount of protein, fat, carbohydrates that aren't going to continue to make you sick and create more diabetes and other chronic conditions. So food security is a really big deal. And and I also remind people that the global food system really has given us this false sense of abundance and variety. So you go to the grocery store and there's what seems like a a lot of food um, and varieties of apples or varieties of different types of foods that we're used to buying, potatoes, for example, um, yet they're, they're really the same. Like when we really look historically at the amounts of say apple varieties, right? And then we tend to see just the same ones. There really is far less variety in the food system um, than there was um, in, in years past. And the other thing is that it, the global food system is vulnerable to disruptions. So um, if there is a trade war between countries, so if there's any kind of a political disruption, uh, we saw this between Canada and China when China was refusing, um, I believe it was canola exports. Um, and uh, so, you know, we'll see uh, disruption there sometimes. Um, if there is weather problems, so if a crop um, suffers due to flooding or drought, we will see, you know, that excess be decreased. Um, and climate change, we're going to see more droughts and flooding. Um, there's going to be, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation and kind of forecasting of, of what could happen. But the point is, the um, food system that we rely on is quite vulnerable. So it's important to start looking at what are alter alternative sources? How can we start to make sure our communities are more food secure? access to food, which leads then to food sovereignty. So food sovereignty means that we have control over our food systems. So a lot of people don't realize, we hear a lot about residential schools um, and that kind of thing for uh, colonial history and a lot of the atrocities that Canada committed um, on these lands to build its country. And um, the decimation of our food systems was central to the project of Canada. And so if you look at the work of James Daszak with Clearing the Plains how and, and um, Johnny McDonald um, having records of saying that we are starving them out, that we are making progress. Um, so so food was used as a weapon against Indigenous peoples to subdue them and to uh, remove us from the land to make way for the railroad. And so um, 
you know, our relationship with the Buffalo as a major food source, our trade systems, our um, trading routes, a lot of times are based on our food systems, on medicines that we would gather in one area, and that we would travel to go and trade with other nations. Um, Not unlike global trade. (laughs) It was very much like that on these lands. And so food sovereignty then is we need to start looking at growing our own food, accessing our food. So that relates to things like hunting and fishing rights, um, which are rights that we always retained. They were not rights that were granted through treaties. These were things that we had always had the right to participate in and that we retain that right. And so I always encourage people to get out on the land as much as possible um, to gather, whether it's berries, to go fishing, if they have hunters in the family, food sovereignty. And it's not just hunting and gathering. We also had, uh, we would grow food food and store food. Corn is, you know, um, uh, one of the the crops that uh, for Indigenous peoples um, was central to our diet, was ground into flowers and that kind of thing and corn mush. And so really learning about our traditional diets. Um, And so food sovereignty is also that we participate in. So it's, it's, a system where it's reciprocal. So it benefits the land, it benefits us. It's not a simply a taking of what we need with disregard for the land and waters. It's reciprocal, it's active. We need to participate in gathering and planting and harvesting that food. It's political because we will bump into provincial provincial um, laws and federal laws and jurisdiction and disputes which have you know gone and made their way through the courts. Um, and then it's also um, deeply spiritual and personal. So understanding that food is sacred uh, in our teachings. And so even if that is a bologna sandwich on Wonder Bread, or if it is, you know, heirloom corn <laughs> that has been grown and ground into a traditional dish, we always recognize that that food is sacred. So these are the concepts of food sovereignty. Okay. And that we can decide what to do, that the governments don't dictate that to us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. I've, I, that is such a comprehensive, the way you explained it is such a comprehensive, but also very easy way to understand and distinguish. And um, for me, some things that kept coming to mind as you were speaking, I, I spent a bit of time um, living in Nunavut and it was, it was incredible um, and, and spent a lot of time out, out on the land with my friend Danny's family. And, and it was just, it was, it was incredible. And then, you know, you would get home from a week uh, out hunting or fishing or camping or all of the above and um, go to the grocery store. And, you know, I wanted to grab some things that I could cook myself for the evening. And um, it was amazing how much more expensive things were, except when they were things that were not healthy for people. Um, And I found myself reflecting on how like inherently colonial that system still is today like the foods that are making people sick and making people unwell are the same price as they would be in the south um but the foods that keep you healthy and and well are five times or six times the price that they are in the south and so um yeah it's it's not a and you did such a eloquent job of explaining this and i feel like anytime i try it's not very good but the the idea that this is not a historical thing this is a very current real like this is still a part of like history is still happening right so um exactly yeah 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 so and and you mentioned um 
you mentioned climate change in in that as well. And I'm I'm curious about, I mean, I have lots of questions about what you just shared too, but I'm curious about your work with um with indigenous climate action and and sort of how you see or how you build those things um, into sort of your health and wellness coaching and also your work with communities. Um, yeah, like what does that look like and and what does your work with indigenous climate action work look like? Sure. So uh, the, they're very complementary uh, and they support one another. So uh, Indigenous Climate Action is still a fairly young organization, about three years old, and it's headed up by Ariel Duranger uh, as our executive director. Uh, and we have a small core staff. I'm on the steering committee and the steering committee, uh, there's uh, a group of us and we meet um we have large meetings, maybe biannually, and then we meet quarterly throughout the year. And then we're on notice as needed to support the organization uh, to give direction or feedback or debate, you know, certain um, issues that come up. And the point of Indigenous Climate Action is to support Indigenous communities in developing Indigenous-led solutions to climate change. And, and by solutions, it's really about how do we mitigate the risk and how do we prepare communities for what's to come? And, um, you know, it's rooted in the science behind climate change, but even more importantly, it's rooted in our traditional teachings. How do we as Indigenous people interpret what is happening today? And there are many prophecies, there are many stories and teachings that um, really outline what's happening today and why, and, and what we're to do to, to address it. And essentially, it's, it's, it's a world that's sick. It's a world that is completely out of balance. Uh, it's as though we as humans have forgotten our place in the web of life, that we are not at the top of the food chain here to dominate the earth and have dominion over the earth, but that we are here as an integral part of the web of life and that we are part of a circle. So it's again about being reciprocal, not taking more um, then we need uh, to also give back uh, to live in right relationship, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so Indigenous Climate Action goes and supports communities. And so different communities will have different needs. So some communities are more interested in their energy needs, whether they're going solar or green or pursuing um, areas like that. Others will be looking at food sovereignty. Others are really looking at, say, um, just public education and, and getting climate change on the radar. And it's really difficult because a lot of Indigenous communities, due to the history of colonization and, and present day, we are stretched thin. We're dealing with economic crises, drinking water crises, youth suicide, um, health issues, uh, infant mortality. Like you know, our, our leaders are spread really thin and we need to tackle climate change on top of it with very few funds. So Indigenous Climate Action was formed to really support those communities as, as um, best we can. So um, it's, it's a growing organization uh, going through growing pains and bumps but it's amazing I have such deep respect for the work um, that we do and for me the way um, I most contribute is um, as a public speaker so I deliver presentations on what Indigenous climate action is all about what we can do to support communities um, and so I will deliver interviews or presentations and then how it works into my work is that um, as is, is the food sovereignty. So some people are really into like, say, um, solar energy and bringing that to indigenous communities, right? And that's their thing. I don't know anything about solar energy and solar panels or uh, windmills and wind energy. I mean, I know the basics, but I can't go into detail. What I do know is 
um, what we can expect to see as a result of climate change and how it's going to impact our food systems and really understanding then how to get Indigenous communities on board to start thinking about this as a way to mitigate climate change. So if we start to see um, grocery store shelves going there, what is our backup plan? And when we saw um, a year ago when people were rushing the grocery stores preparing for lockdown, you know, this is kind of the first um, glimpse people have had of um, supply and demand uh, and, and reliance on a global system that was shut down by a pandemic. So there are other things that could shut down and likely will shut down that as we see climate change grow. So I, I try to feed Indigenous climate action as much as I can through those presentations. Um, and then the connections that I get through that um, really um, influence my work as a health and wellness coach, because it's not just about getting people healthy. It's about getting our communities healthy and our lands and our waters healthy to provide us with those nourishing foods that come from the land. And how do we start taking steps toward that future? And so the next phase of my work um, will focus on training people in Indigenous communities to do what I do. So I'm one person. I go and deliver these workshops, presentations, one-on-one coaching or group programs, but I can only be so many places at once. I have to be sustainable. Like, it has to be sustainable for me. I have a family and my body is not a machine. And so um, I'm in the early stages of developing um, what's called the SHAL program, which stands for Sustainable Health and Wellness Leaders. So again, it's about understanding health and wellness through food, through movement, through, you know, balancing the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, how that's impacted by our relationships and our environment um, and, and teaching, you know, about climate change and food sovereignty and security and in giving um, people in the communities who would also have an interest in doing this kind of work, you know, having a training program so that they could deliver the type of work that I deliver. Um, because really what's important to me is getting this in information out there, casting that wide net so that anyone who wants to access this type of work um, or programs or support will have that. So um, it's a big vision <laughs> that I will see, you know, develop over time, but it's definitely informed by my concerns about climate change and what I see, you know, coming down in 10, 20, 50 years and making sure that we're prepared for that and that we lay the seeds now um, so that we can, you know, grow, grow those gardens literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was so hoping um, you were going to mention that program because when you when you mentioned to, it to me earlier, um, yeah, I just I think just listening to you talk about it, it's such a inspiring, like very tangible way um, that you're bringing all of these again with that web. These things that seem like very um, you know very complex, very challenging. Um, they are very complex and very challenging issues um, impacting the world and impacting our communities. And then taking it back to, okay, so what can what can I do or what can we do as a part of a community to really build a more resilient, healthy, sustainable um, place for us to live, so that we can better deal with things as it gets more challenging. So. Um, that's really exciting. So um, just to dive into that, the shawl program a little bit more, Michelle, um, it sounds like, you know, it's, it's something you have a vision for and, and you're working towards. Um, so would the idea be, there would be sort of a, um, there would be a Michelle <laughs> um, in, in each of each community, like uh, the community would have um, someone like yourself, um, who's, who's trained and, and provides support. And, um, is that sort of what the vision looks like? 
Yes. So it is. So the shell program is a program. It's actually a program, like a group program that you could register for, sign up for, and and then do the program. And it's a 12 week program or a three month program because it's really about facilitating habit change. Um, and it can be stretched and accommodated. So sometimes I get with um, a, a client, if it's a one on one um uh, situation um, where we'll start off initially, but then that needs to be expanded. Or sometimes it needs to be shortened because they're just like, okay, I got this. I can handle it and, and move on. Um, so, but that seems to be like the best kind of chunk of time. And so uh, we learn about, you know, again, all the things that I just described about balancing the four areas of wellness, um, really how to integrate this into a sustainable way. And the sustainable of that is, is twofold. It's sustainable in that can you maintain those changes in your own individual life over time? And to, is it sustainable from an environmental uh, community perspective, right? So it's really about um, integrating the individual and the collective. Um, so it's that. So yeah, so I deliver that program. And then essentially people would, would become um, Shawl certified facilitators. So the Shawl program is a program in and of its own. That's a standalone program that can be delivered in a group setting. And then once people have gone through that, instead of bringing me to a community, they could have people from their own communities uh, take the training program uh, and become Shawl certified facilitators. And then they could deliver that into their own community. And the whole point is to create leaders sustainable health and wellness leaders within the community to live by example, to support one another so that we're again, casting this wider net. And, um, and then I just see support for those facilitators over time. So quarterly calls, updates, um, you know, teaching so that there is really this support to really spread the word and, and to encourage one another um, to start creating these shifts in our families and in our communities, because that's what's going to reverberate throughout the world. Um, so it's, it's really about taking that individual um, those individual changes, modeling them in your family and in your community. And, and yeah, and so if there's an interest for that, so, you know, and then there's, there's teaching on how to, how to coach, how to support people to make those, uh, understanding the scope of, of the work that we do as health and wellness coaches, um, you know, and then even down the road, I mean, I would love to establish um, an Indigenous health coach training program to um, teach people how to take those coaching um, uh, practices even deeper. Um, but this, this is long term. So, um, but I'm super excited about this work and just what I can do to be of service uh, to our communities and really help build a stronger future for our children to grow up in. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And I, as you were chatting to Michelle, I think um, it, that the program really speaks to, you know, for folks to have a network of others who are also interested. So maybe if they can't necessarily find someone in their community who's also really passionate about doing that work, they're sort of connected to this network of other people, maybe from other communities that they don't even know, but they sort of have that, um, yeah, they, they feel supported by a network of folks who are who are working towards the same sort of positive changes. So um, I know that's one of my favorite ways to learn is just seeing and I mean, as much as social media can sometimes be such a negative thing, um, for me, I've also found it really empowering and inspiring because I'll see people and I'm like, oh, they're doing that. And they don't, I don't know them, but they don't live very far away. If they are doing something like that, like maybe that's something I can do too. Um, but yeah, it sounds like the way you've you've thought through that program um, allows people to kind of, that peer learning, right? Like learning from each other too. So 
Exactly, exactly. Right. And really creating that network where we're, we're all supporting and, and helping one another because um, it's, it's hard doing this work alone. You know, we, we need to stick together and, and have that support. And that's where that sustainability comes from, too, because sometimes people need to slow down and rest and others are ready to, to you know, take that torch and move the work forward. And we have to have, you know, an ebb and a flow and a re- reciprocity in this work, because if we all try to be on all the time, we're going to burn out. And, um, you know, and that's what this, this, the pro- launch of this program has been delayed by a year, the, the COVID year, <laughs> because um, it, we were just about to, you know, really make some headway into that. And um, the whole world went on hold, but I think it was a good lesson too, in slowing down people getting in touch with their bodies. Um, I mean, it's super stressful. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this experience. Some people are really suffering, um, but I think it's been, um, transformative for many people in many ways and um it, it, everyone's been impacted by it one way or another so. yeah absolutely and i really mm-hmm. appreciated what you had said earlier about um like i am not a machine like my body is not a machine that's not that's not what i'm here for that's not so you know taking rest when we need it and supporting each other and and loving our communities even the communities of people we don't know, like, it's just so, um, yeah, it's all, it's all a part of it. So yeah. Um, that's incredible. So Michelle, I want to make sure I, I leave folks, um, with a way to like learn more about you and learn more about your programs. Like, is there a way, I guess, what is the best way for, for people to, to get in touch with you and, and, um, yeah, learn more about your offerings and the work that you do. Certainly. So right now, the best way to reach me is through email at michelle at michellebrass.com. Um, so that's Michelle with two L's, michellebrass.com. Um, my website was taken down last year because I had to stop working and I couldn't take any requests. So um, rather than having to say no several times, I just, I rendered it inactive. So um, that will be up and running again shortly. And that's michellebrass.com. Um, and then there they can access um, a description of my programs, um, you know, contact form to reach me. Um, I'm also very accessible on Facebook, um, Michelle Brass. There's a few of us out there, um, but um, hopefully you can, I climb this hill in Labrette, Saskatchewan right now. So I've got all these cool climbing videos of me. I'm trying to reach this goal of climbing it 200 times in a year my husband did that last year and challenged me to do the same and it's actually an exercise in cultivating the principles of discipline consistency and perseverance which is essential if you want to change you know habits into positive ones so these are qualities you need um but i'm accessible on facebook um it's a it's public and it's open um and my contact information is there as well Awesome. Great. Well, after this show, Michelle, I'll make sure to, to link all of that in the, in the show notes so folks can reach you. And it's funny, you mentioned the Labrette Hill. I, I actually grew up in Southeastern Saskatchewan. I grew up, um, uh, in, I'm from Walmart, Saskatchewan. And so I know the Labrette Hill. Yeah. I know the Labrette Hill quite well, and I have climbed it maybe twice. So I'm good luck with 200 times a year. I like, (laughs) You're awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, my husband is the one who inspired me. He's the one that started this and um, he, he did 200 in a year. And I was just so amazed at the transformation um, that he experienced. And it, it has been very meaningful for, for me and my family to do that. So 
thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. I look forward to hearing more about it and following along. So thanks so much for being on the podcast with me today, Michelle. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Jenna. Me too. I love this experience and thank you for the invitation. It was a real honor. for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.